Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Susie Scherr, co-head of the Global Financing Group. Um, Stacy's the president of the New York Stock Exchange. She has just passed her one-year anniversary on the job. Let's talk about your early career. You were at Lehigh as an intern in 1994. What initially drew you to working on the stock exchange? And back in 1994, like women weren't stumbling onto the floor <laughs> of the stock exchange. So how did you end up there? So I will say that nothing, absolutely nothing drew me to working on the trading floor other than I, I didn't have a summer job. So I was studying engineering in school and I always liked math and science and always found that interesting. So I went, I went that direction. And I liked engineering and I was enjoying the, the, the courses and stuff. But I was, I was a poor planner, I guess I would say, at that stage in my life. And so I didn't have a summer job lined up. And I started looking later and I was trying to get a job waitressing and nobody would hire me because I didn't have any waitressing experience. And I think it's their mistake, frankly, because I would have been a fantastic waitress. I mean, I really think I would have been good at that, but, but they, they wouldn't take a chance on me. So I threw, I mean, my father had been in the business and he was a trader, he was an institutional block trader, but he never talked about work. So I had no knowledge of what he did for a living or how it worked. And he said, well, maybe I can see if I know somebody who can help get you an internship. So it was sort of that stereotypical, you know, summer job on the trading floor. And I went down there and literally within 15 minutes, I was like, this is the coolest place in the world. Like, I just loved it. I loved the energy and the pace. And so I, I went back and finished my degree and then started full time on the floor after that. So you returned as a floor clerk. And at the time, and in many ways still today, uh, trading floor is a male dominated area. What did you experience as the advantages and disadvantages of being one of only a few dozen women on the floor? And I bet you it was even, even less than that. I bet you it felt pretty, pretty alone down there. Yeah, I didn't notice it so much. You know, I, I, that's been something about me and my life that I just never really noticed my gender. I, I just didn't think about it. So when I got to the floor, yes, I, I knew I was outnumbered, uh, but I didn't really think much about it. And frankly, there are pros and cons. You know, you had a, I had a much higher profile on the trading floor as a woman. And there were a handful of women down there that I, that I worked with and they gave me some of the you know, tips on, on what it's like to be a woman on the trading floor. But I think it worked to my advantage, frankly, at a lot of times because I had people who knew me and recognized me and helped me learn and they were excited. You know, I got a little bit of extra credit just for liking the trading floor as a woman because it wasn't a place that a lot of women wanted to work. So it, it, it always worked out in my favor. And I, I think that's important if you think about just leveraging whatever there is to your benefit. You know, there are times where it'll be challenging when you're outnumbered like that. But if, there's, or if there are times where it, it can be used to your advantage, take advantage of it. I bet you nobody ever forgot who you were, called you Bill. Yeah. So. No, they called me the girl. It, the girl. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So when people say, hey, you must have had a lot of, I'm like, I think I tuned a lot out. Yeah. You know, but it was like, hey, what does the girl think? But, you know, I, I think one of the things that I took away from it was they, there was, while it didn't come out in their words, there was a lot of respect for me. And that was what was most important to me, is I wanted to be respected and I respected the people around me. And I always made it clear that they had to respect me. So I always drew boundaries, what was okay, what wasn't okay, and I always found that if you draw clear boundaries, people usually abide by them. So 
you worked your way up the exchange. You'd been doing it for, you know, call it nine or 10 years. And then in 2005, you took a detour and enrolled in culinary school. Talk to us about that move. What was going on in your mind at the time? Tell us a little bit about it, but try not to make me hungry. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what was going on in my mind. I like to eat. So I like food. I've always liked food. I've always liked to eat. And so when I thought about time to, you know, it being time to make a career change, I, I didn't really think I was going to go into culinary arts and, and work in a restaurant full time, but I knew I was going to always like to eat. And so I thought that would be a skill that would be fun to have. If you read a lot of the media attention that I've gotten over the past year, it was like, I left Wall Street to become a chef and then came back to her calling. I'm like, no, I just wanted to go be a better cook. And so I did that for a little bit of time. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And I was shocked by how similar working in a kitchen was to working on a trading floor. It, there, there are a lot of aspects of it. The communication style is very direct. The pace is very quick. You, you, you don't have time to really work through whose fault something is. If something goes wrong, you just need to fix it and move on. And, and I think those are all skills that, that translate. And there's a somewhat twisted sense of humor that seems, seems uh, tolerated in those places too. So there was a lot of, a lot of similarities between the, um, you know, working on a, a trading floor and working in the kitchen. So it was fun, but I, I, didn't, I didn't earn a living that way. So in 2007, you returned to Wall Street and to the competitor exchange, NASDAQ, where you served a five-year stint and rose to head of sales. This was also a time when equities was at a crossroads with technology evolving at a rapid pace. How did these factors play into your decision to join NASDAQ and not, not go back to the NYSE? And can you talk a little bit for us about that time in the markets mm -hmm. and technology and being at NASDAQ? So tell us about the environment. Yeah, the, the markets were changing a lot. And my own personal and, and the market experience was somewhat intertwined. I mean, part of why I decided to leave the trading floor in 2005 when I left was because there was technology and there were people, and the technology kept getting better. And so the NYC always used you know, newer technology and was always evolving, but it wasn't integrated very well at that time. So the faster the technology got, it was more in conflict with the, with the people. And, and that was a challenge because if you weren't gonna change the model, you were just gonna be less effective as a person. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why I left the, the floor. And like I said, I took a, a little bit of time off. And when it came to going back to work, I thought, well, I'll go to NASDAQ because of the, the, the model that was there and, and, and because of the, where they were in a technology landscape at that, at that point in time. And the markets were changing so dramatically because if you go back to that time period, sort of in the early 2000s, the majority of trading was happening wherever a stock was listed. So if you were listed on the New York Stock Exchange or if you were listed on NASDAQ, most of your trading occurred there. But the SEC had adopted regulations back in 2007 that started to really change that landscape and said, hey, trading is gonna occur wherever the best price is, regardless of wherever that might be. And so the markets became much, much more fragmented than they had ever been before. And technology became such an increasingly important part of trading in the equity space because you had to get to wherever the price was. So it didn't matter what your business model looked like if you weren't using good technology and taking in prices from all the different various places effectively, you weren't gonna be able to, to trade effectively. So I, I was at NASDAQ during that period of time when the markets were really evolving and then it wasn't until a little bit later that I decided to leave. So you rejoined the MIC in 2012, just 10 day before ICE purchased 
uh, you know, this incredibly iconic institution, and you set about to modernize the trading floor. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the combination of human traders and technology, and especially your experience at the, the New York Stock Exchange? You know, it's interesting, and, and I'll touch a little bit on the ICE part, too, because it was really interesting to take a job and you know when I when I left Nasdaq, it was it was a hard decision for me to make. I learned a lot from that organization, and and it really enjoyed the people that I worked with there. But I, I knew it was it was the right move for me at that moment in time. And I knew that at that point, NYC was at a different place than it had been when I when I first left. And they really were integrating technology much more differently than uh, you know in a much more effective way than they had when I when I was there. So I wanted to be part of that, and I and I, I felt like I could contribute. Con contribute a lot of value. So I joined, and 10 days later, it gets announced that we're being acquired, which I'm like, nobody could give me a heads up that we're about to be acquired. So you really didn't know? <laughs> no, literally, I had no idea. I had no idea when I took the job. And I, uh, you know, I think with change comes opportunity, and it was a really interesting period of time to be there and to really embrace how we could change the organization. And when a 12-year-old company announces plans to buy a 220-year-old institution, it was so empowering to be able to think, how do we want to make this place as great as it could possibly be? And how do we want to capture what's really fantastic about the NYC and unique and build on that and invest in that and make that even better and stop doing the stuff that we've just been doing for a really long time and we don't need to do anymore. You know, And, and so going through that analysis was really exciting and to just be part of that team that could really reinvent a place and have no uh, no sacred cows you know like there was definitely a message that hey you can change whatever you want to change here and we could really really be disruptive to this overall business was was very was very exciting and it was a forcing function and i think when as a leader in a business you have to force yourself to do that exercise all the time. Mm -hmm. You can't just wait to say, hey, we're being acquired, now what do, we want, what do we want to keep and what do we want to toss? Because you take so, there's so much value in going through that exercise, you, you just have to force yourself to, to do it constantly. So a year ago, you were named president, the first woman to hold that position at NYSE. Talk to us about what it's like to step into the role, particularly at a time when it's getting increasingly competitive. And you can, you can add gender into it, you can say gender has nothing to do with it, you know, it's your question, so answer Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's, I, it was interesting to, to take the job because it was, it felt natural to me. I mean, when, when I talked to people the day after I took the job and they said, how does it feel? You know, your, how does your first day feel? I said, well, it feels a lot like yesterday because, you know, I was chief operating officer before. We're still focusing on how do we run this business and how do we accomplish what we're trying to achieve. So it didn't feel so differently from that perspective. What was new to me was it was being much more public and having a, a public profile. And I, I, I guess I'm clueless about my gender, so it just didn't occur to me that the fact that I was the first woman in this role was going to be a big deal. And I was wrong. You know, I mean, I literally got thousands and thousands of emails and letters and messages from people everywhere. And, and it, it, it was, uh, you know, I thought I would do CNBC. I didn't expect to do the Today Show and CBS This Morning and talk about being a woman in this role. And what was really clear is it was so important to not just other women, but just to people to see that you could be successful and you didn't have to look like the picture of what people said, you know, people think your, your role should look like. And that was uh, a, a teaching moment for me because I realized that it's so important to, to be an example when you're in a senior role. So I think it's really important to recognize when you're in a senior leadership role that you're actually redrawing boundaries for everyone else around you. And so that I you know, I internalized after I got used to taking selfies and lots of pictures where I was sort of a non-picture person before that. Uh, you know, I realized that that, that that was an, an important part of it. 
but it's such an iconic institution that if, on a personal level, setting aside the first female part of it, that was really exciting for me because you know, the NYC in, in many ways symbolizes the US capital markets on the global stage. And so now being the face of that organization and, and going out there and, and speaking on behalf is something I'm very proud to do because I've, I've always been, uh, you know, I grew up on the trading floor, I love the NYC. And, and over the past year, the most exciting part of the job has really been getting to know the listed companies that we have. Uh, that and the ways that they're out there changing the way we live, work, and play every single day, and they're really changing the world, and that's that's why our capital markets are here, and that's been exciting. In, in terms of your own goals for adapting the exchange uh, as the future of the equity market becomes, you know, increasingly global, tech-focused, and data-driven, can you lay those out for us? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is is top of my priority list is making sure that that our country remains the premier capital raising venue, right? And, and if you look at what has been a driver of success of this nation, and one, you know, it's really been built on the premise that a dreamer or an entrepreneur can come here, have an idea, it doesn't matter what they did before or what their background is, but they can raise money and they can go out and build that idea. And importantly, along the way, other in, uh, others can share in their success and dream alongside them by investing with them. So those opportunities for investors, I think is really part of what has made this country very, very unique and special. What we've seen is the number of public companies is down by half over the past you know, 20, 25 years. And that's a concerning trend. Companies are staying private much longer. They're waiting till they're much bigger before they come out to market. And what, mean, you know, what that means is that they, they have the, the most rapid growth years earlier in their life cycle. So investors are missing out on that, the everyday investor. When a company stays private and comes out to market at a much larger valuation, it means that the public investors missed out on that. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly a big priority for me when we look at how do we right size the landscape here so that, that public investors have access to the, the most dynamic opportunities. When it comes to helping them raise money, yes, we use AI, we use blockchain, we use all these other things that are out there that are um, you know, new technologies, but for me, that's just how do we how do we continue the goal of getting uh, achieving our mission, and our mission is to help companies raise money so they can go out and change the world and provide investors with opportunities. From Pinterest to PagerDuty to Uber, we're seeing a surge in tech IPOs. 2018, we saw more billion-dollar tech IPOs than ever before, and obviously 2019 is on uh, pace to break those records. How do you think? the activity today differs from activity that you've seen in the past, and maybe you want to reminisce a little bit mm -hmm. about you know, the, the early 2000s and the mm -hmm. tech bubble. Mm -hmm. So you know, talk a little bit about what you're seeing today and what you were seeing then. Obviously, you were, you're running the place now, but yeah. you know, different seat then. So I was on the trading floor back then, and frankly, many of those companies weren't listing on the New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. because they didn't qualify to list on the New York Stock Exchange. And part of the reason why was because they weren't profitable. And so the NYC listing rules said you had to be a profitable company <laughs> to, to go public on the NYC. And that I'm laughing because many of the companies that are public companies today did not come to the public markets profitable. Uh, it would mean that you know, Amazon and all of these other companies would, wouldn't have qualified to list on the NYC. So we modernized our listing standards a few years ago, and, and we've seen that shift, which has been great, because now over the past five years, 75% of technology proceeds has come to the NYC, uh, has been raised on the NYC. But so that's been a shift. But importantly, those companies were small back then. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the companies now that are coming to market, they're, they're much larger mm -hmm. on average you know, than, they, than they were 
back then. We raised uh, on the NYC this year to date, we've added $100 billion of new technology market cap. So that includes you know, the, the, the size of all the companies that came to market and including Slack who didn't actually have a, a raise. But that's the, the most amount of money. I mean, you go back to 2014 when Alibaba, which was the largest IPO of all time, listed, it was $100 billion in that whole year. And we're only in June, and there's been $100 billion added year to date. So there is a lot of demand, and, and the companies are much bigger that are coming to market, and I, I have a problem with that uh, because I do think investors are missing out on, on things. And I also think it, it, it changes the profile. You mentioned a pager duty. Pager duty is much smaller, mm -hmm. but its performance up 100%, right, over 100%. So you look at some of the smaller companies, they're actually performing a lot better than the, the big companies. And on average, across the board, tech companies are up 30%. So there's still investor demand. There's still interest. I think it's very different from a landscape perspective than it was, you know, 17 years ago. Because the companies are much, they're much larger, they're much more disciplined, they're more like public companies in a lot of ways. Do you see, so two questions. One, do you see that changing anytime soon with the development of these big pools of private capital, i.e. people coming out earlier? And two, you know, separately, what mechanisms could, could we all put into place that would allow smaller companies at earlier stages to go public sooner? Yeah, we wanna make sure that we're taking away some of the barriers that prevent companies from going public. I mean, it sounds a little bit self-serving as the president of the New York Stock Exchange, but. Uh, we're always looking at the private markets and what we might want to do there. I'd rather, I don't think the right answer is for us to firm up the private markets and introduce new value there or even open up. One of the things Chairman Clayton has referenced lately is, is providing more public investor access to the private markets. And I view, you know, my view, if we're going to say that public investors could have access to private markets and companies are staying private because of the burdens in the public markets, if we don't need that um, protection, investor protections, why not just loosen up what we have in the public markets and, and make them accessible to, to everyone? But there are a number of drivers. One is activism, shareholder activism is, is a top one. Having investors that they can't control who their investors are and share their long-term views versus uh, kind of hitting that, that quarterly cycle on, on earnings is a challenge that companies like to avoid. So as I talk to CEOs of pre-IPO companies, they often say, hey, I have a plan and a strategy that I want to put in place, but it's going to be a few months before, or a few quarters before we're, we're actually at a place where we have predictable revenues and we think the uh, public markets will be able to handle that, so I'm going to wait to go public until then. But that means they're growing like this, and then they go public when they're stable. And so that that that's a concern. I mean, one of the things we've talked about is could we uh, look at the reporting cycles for new companies, much like we have on ramps for small and emerging growth companies. Could we do that for the public markets too, and, and adjust some of the disclosures that they have to make just in the first part of their life cycle as a public company, as an on ramp, and, and get them there sooner. Um, so we've now had Slack and Spotify. Talk, talk to us, what's your narrative on direct listing? Where do you think it goes over, over time? Does it, does it, does, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this as a person who runs equity capital markets, but do all companies eventually directly list? I mean, and what's the, what's the time frame as, you know, companies go from, you know, a couple of companies where the facts and circumstances make sense to, you know, more people testing the waters? I, I don't think it becomes the norm and I don't think it's the right thing for all companies. I do think Slack will change the pace of how many companies explore it. And it was frankly last year when I worked on the, the Spotify uh, non-transaction, <laughs> Spotify listing, it was the most interesting thing for us to be working on. You know, they, they came to us a year and a half prior 
and said, hey, we're not really ready to talk about this publicly yet, but this is our idea and this is what we're thinking. What do you think about it? And we designed this model. We worked with them. We went down to the SEC and had to lobby for changes and get the SEC comfortable with the process, which was a process to yeah. do. It was very different than the way the markets work. And, and so we, we went back and forth and changed changed aspects of it. And it was a really interesting project to say, hey, this is, this is unique. And the, the intuitive nature would be, hey, we don't want to do this because it's going to disrupt the, the banking business. But as we all know, you need to be ready to disrupt yourself and be part of that. Otherwise, uh, it, it, it's, um, you know, it can be a challenge. So it was really an interesting project to work on. And it was sort of the brainchild of, originally of the CFO uh, of Spotify, Barry McCarthy. But it, we saw it come to market and Spotify went off without a hitch and it actually traded with less volatility than most tech IPOs. But there was a little part that was like, well, was that just Spotify? Because it was, you know, they were the first one. And Slack, it was, it traded so shockingly smoothly. I mean, it, it opened at 38 and a half and it sat there. It traded up a little bit higher, traded back down, closed at 3860. I mean, it, it, it was a really smooth listing process. And I think, you know, when you look at the reasons why a company chooses to become a public company, it's typically four reasons. They want to raise money, they want to go out on the road and, and, and have the public profile, the public listing be a brand and visibility act for, for them so they can attract new customers. I very often hear from CEOs who say, when I became a public company, it was easier for me to go win business, especially in the enterprise software space because they want to give themselves a stability of like, hey, we're already a public company. So brand invisibility, uh, capital raising, and then a, a liquidity for their employees. And then importantly, and, and their early investors, but importantly, that's become, increasingly that's becoming one of the reasons we hear a lot of Silicon Valley companies going, because they've been private for a long time and their employees want to go buy a house and their RSUs don't necessarily do that for them unless they can just have some liquidity. Uh, so the liquidity part, and then currency, so if they want to engage in M&A, and, and shortly after Spotify became a public company, they use their, their stock to, to, um, to do a deal. So those are kind of generally the four reasons. For a direct listing, you, you have to be willing to not raise capital right away. That, that can't be your driving factor. Doesn't mean you can't raise it down the road, but you, but you can't raise it, you know, you're, you're not raising money as part of the, the listing. And the brand of visibility is, is not, you know, you're not going out and attracting investors and, 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 uh, and customers from, from the roadshow piece of it. But it doesn't mean that you can't use this process to continue to achieve the other goals like liquidity and currency. And, and that's, that's what we saw. So I, I do think because it was so smooth and because there are now two, there will be other companies that consider it deeply. Yeah, I, I, you need to have sellers. So that either needs to come in the form of distributed shareholder base, or you have a concentration of sellers that are actually willing to sell because you need liquidity right. for it to work well. So when you say, hey, who's, this, who's cut out for this or who's not, if you need to raise a lot of money, you're probably not gonna do a direct listing. You're gonna do an IPO. If you don't have liquidity already, but because you have a lot of shareholders that, that could sell, or you have at least some shareholders that are willing to sell into the market, you know, it, it doesn't work if you don't have, you, know, you need to have that, that base. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. You've clearly loved your career, um, even the chef detour. Um, <laughs> I still like to eat. Are, you are clearly doing important work, and you've got a lot more to do and a lot more to do with us. We really appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Thanks so much. This podcast was recorded on June 24th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person.
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.